Support for this episode of The Seams comes from Feel Good Yarn Company, a Martha Stewart American-made finalist and the creator of Silverspun, an American-made cotton yarn spun with pure silver. Silverspun, the strength of cotton, the feel of cashmere, the healing properties of silver. Learn more at feelgoodyarncompany.com. I'm Jackie Lydon, and this is The Seams. Clothing is our common thread in every stitch a story. Fashion is inspirational, aspirational, and transformative. And in this podcast, in very different ways, we're going to explore that. We thought we'd begin with Joe Z. He's the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Style. He's dressed everyone from J-Lo to Naomi Campbell. Now, we all know that fashion can be an awfully judgmental thing. Who can forget Joan Rivers and her show, The Fashion Police? I mean, it was fun. But Joe Z says fashion shouldn't be about judgment. I didn't join an industry so that I could judge people. I joined an industry that I loved and I thought could make people feel better. Josie has written a memoir. It's called That's What Fashion Is, Lessons and Stories from My Nonstop, Mostly Glamorous Life and Style. He wrote the book partly because he wants to invite everyone to join the fashion party. If you put on something great, don't you feel better? That isn't cause for judgment. That should be cause for celebration. So I love it when people get excited. I don't love it when people feel like they're nervous. And there is a lot of exclusionary feeling or tone sometimes. But from boyhood, you kind of in your imagination would style people, your mom, your classmates, you're this Asian kid growing up in Toronto. And in your mind, you're already a fashion editor. The weird thing is I never thought I was because, you know, Growing up as a kid in Toronto, it's like pre-internet, pre-cell phones, you know, so I'm certainly not realizing that there's someone called a fashion editor. But at the same time, you know, I'm six and I can drag my desk out from the bedroom into the living room. And as people walk by, I met my brother and sister. (laughs) I would charge them. (laughs) I would charge them a dime for style advice to tell them, like, no, that doesn't look good or this looks good or whatever at six. And I realized now looking back, I was like. Oh, I was already giving style advice to people and helping them out, but also making it a business. So take us into the early days of career. You've been at Allure, WL, Yahoo Style. You've done red carpet commentary, hosted reality shows. But uh, in the beginning, uh, you were doing some slim fast stuff, slim days. Oh, yes, we're taking you back while we read the books. Um, so what yeah. Was You know, I moved here from Toronto and I went to school and it was important for me to come to New York and want to be a fashion editor. But when I got here, I had no money. You know, I was so broke. Like, my, my friend and I that I met at school, like, I couldn't even eat a slice of pizza for lunch because that was $1.15. I mean, I know what pizza is $1.15 anymore, but <laughs> it was $1.15 a slice, and that was expensive for us. So we would drink cans of Slim Fast that we got at the supermarket for $0.85 cents a can, and that we could have that for lunch, not because we were losing weight, but because it was cheaper and we'd be filling. And on Fridays, we'd splurge and have that $1.15 slice. But, you know, and like I look back and I'm very fond of that. And I'm glad I had that. And I wanted to have that because you can appreciate all the things that you work for. How about the millennial generation that's trying to break into this business? I mean, do you have words of encouragement? You just saw, you know, these students at FIT. Yeah. This is in New York. There's people all over town trying to break into fashion. Well, I, yeah. And I think for millennials, it's, it's, very, it's a very different generation today because they're a lot more connected and they have a lot more of a resource. Like I had no community. You know, I had me and my friends to school. It wasn't like I could just throw it out there on Facebook and be like, what else are you guys doing? Or ask people on Twitter. Like That didn't exist. What do you think are the best industry changes for the designers since you began your career and the best ones for customers? 
Well, I think the best thing for customers is that they become less dictated to. You know, the customers actually have the upper hand now, to be quite honest. Because when I started in 1990, you didn't know what happened at fashion shows. It was such an inside world. Nobody saw anything. It wasn't live stream. There was no Instagram. It wasn't there. Buyers would look at it, decide what they wanted to buy, put it in the store, and the customers could only buy what was in the store. And if it was all about 60s mini skirts, well, then that's all there was in the store. And, you know, the customer had to felt like, well, I'll just squeeze into that trend until next year. But today, they get to dictate all that. <laughs> if, if it's not about 60s for you and I'm pants for me, well, you're going to have that too. And customers can watch and see anything they want. They can go to the store and be like, I want this now. And I think for designers, it is harder now because they are competing with sort of fast fashion, I hate that term, but just high-low in a, in a way that wasn't there before because a person who was buying Chanel would never have shopped at H&M before. Today, there's so much cachet in mixing it all together. So how does Karl Lagerfeld compete with H&M? Hence, he was the first one to start that collaboration of the Karl Lagerfeld at H&M. You know? And I think designers understand, like, if, not, if we can't beat the game, how do we join it? How are we going to play it? Why do you hate that term, fast fashion? Because I don't think it's fast. I think, to be honest, you know, they say fast because the deliveries are every other week or something, but it makes the fashion feel like it should be irrelevant. And and I think it isn't irrelevant. It's just high-low, and it's just different. And I think there are some things from the Uniglo's and the H&M's that are so incredibly well-made and done, and some are not. Yeah. But I can tell you the same for high-end designers. Hmm. Some are incredibly well-made and some are not. And I think that's sort of a thing where like, it's hard to say that one is disposable and one's not. I think it's just a completely different thing. We're going to hear from Joe Z a little later in this episode because we have three questions we want him to answer, including, of course, what Hillary should really wear. Fashion is so fluid and emotional that it can stand in for our aspirations and dreams. And that's very much the story behind the Ebony Fashion Fair. The Johnson Publishing Company and its flagship magazine, Ebony, started the Fashion Fair back in the late 1950s. The Fashion Fair was this haute couture show with young African-American models, and it raised tens of millions of dollars for the United Negro College Fund and a lot of other causes. The Fashion Fair actually lasted until 2009, and it changed the lives of those on both sides of the catwalk. Last year, the Chicago History Museum staged a show called Inspiring Beauty, 50 Years of Ebony Fashion Fair, and this show is still traveling the country. I did a story for NPR about some of the women behind the Fashion Fair. Growing up in gritty Compton, California, Paula Bond used to wonder, can anything good ever come out of here? Well, she did. Ebony put her on its cover and then in the fashion fair. Hello, America. Here I am on the runway wearing these gowns that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. This little black girl in my mind, the gowns that I wore on that runway cost more than a used car my mom was ever able to afford when we were growing up. Faye Mosley was a six-foot track star from Jackson, Mississippi, and the 23-year-old single mom of a five-year-old. She was in the fashion fair in 1983. She had the legs, and they loved her on the runway. I tended to wear things that were see-through and that were short. You wore your most over-the-top fashion garment. 
because you could. And then when the show started, you were mesmerized. You never left your seat because you were afraid that you would miss a one-of-a-kind garment, an outfit. The Ebony Fashion Fair started in 1958 in the grand ballroom of Chicago's Conrad Hilton Hotel. Then it hit the road, from splashy big city venues to high school gyms and tiny whistle stops. The young models traveled by bus, with seats removed for their long legs, all over the country and throughout the Jim Crow South. In the early 60s, the Fashion Fair was in Jackson, Mississippi. Racial tensions were boiling over. A young woman from Vicksburg named Del Handy was with them then. It almost felt like steam coming up from the pavement. You could just feel it. And our name was on our bus at one time, you know, Ebony Fashion Fair, and I remember them taking the name off the bus so as not to call attention. But they were making history. The models were invited to the White House in 1961, and young Del Handy met the president, John F. Kennedy. John Johnson, Ebony's publisher, knew the models were aspirational figures, and he wanted them seen that way. John and his wife Eunice Johnson were visionaries. They met and married in Chicago, where he worked in insurance and she earned a master's degree in social work. By 1945, they'd also created Ebony and later Jet. Eunice Johnson, who was from a socially prominent family in Selma, loved fashion and style, and she used it for black self-empowerment. Linda Johnson-Rice is Eunice's daughter and Johnson Publishing's CEO today. She just wanted to prove that there was nothing you couldn't do. There was no barrier to black beauty. She would put the brightest yellow, brightest orange on the most dark-skinned model that she had. In his memoir, John Johnson writes that at first, Eunice had to beg, persuade, and threaten to buy clothes from European designers reluctant to sell high fashion to a black woman. I mean, you had to explain it Givenchy, you had to explain it Dior, you had to explain it Valentino, every single place you go. It wasn't as if they weren't welcoming. They were, were I think, sort of shocked. I mean, who is this woman coming here, this well-dressed black woman, and she's coming with her checkbook? Get ready to be entertained and fashionably inspired as we present to you Ebony Fashion Fair's Fit to be Fabulous. For the black middle class and the African-American sororities and charities, this was the event of the year. In Washington, D.C., Tanya Tally Smith and her mother and sister dressed to the nines and went every year, either to the Kennedy Center or a nearby country club, a tradition that started for them in 1968. We had grown to a place where we had not been before. And not only that, we were beginning to go into stores that we couldn't go into. And the style of the hair was beginning to change, even down to the color of your hosiery. Because back when I came along, to get a pair of hose to match your skin, we had to dye them. It would never have would occurred to me, frankly, that you couldn't even get stockings in your own skin hue. No, you could not. I learned that from my mother very early because they, they were too light. And so you learned to dip them in coffee. Maxine Craig, who teaches gender studies at UC Davis, points out that Ebony Magazine and the Fashion Fair were all about racial aspirations. 
So Ebony would say something like, this season we will need cashmere sweaters because they're essential when you go on a cruise. Now, most of the readership, if they were in the South, couldn't even sit in the front of a bus, much less go on a cruise. Um, At that time, the airlines refused to hire black stewardesses. And then you've got Ebony showing models carrying Pan Am flight bags. So they're letting black readers visualize where they will go. High fashion may be distant, but style is accessible. And it's your right to have it. All the way from Milan, Italy, comes this fabulous powder blue cape suit. Those rights became part of American life. So did the fashion fair. Ever more over the top with names like Fashion Scandal, Fashion Seduction, Fashion Sizzle. Former models Paula Bond and Faye Mosley. When Mrs. Johnson started the show, we were colored. colored. We then evolved into Negroes. That was followed by uh, We Were Black. Remember, black. say it loud, I'm black, black and I'm proud. proud. Right, right. <laughs> and then into being called African Americans. Both models went on to the Paris runways. Today, Faye works for a Fortune 500 firm, and Paula has her own Beverly Hills production company. She's making a documentary about the models, whom she compares to the Tuskegee Airmen or the Negro Baseball League. These models were pioneers, but there is one disappointment that both these women share. Paula Bond and Faye Mosley both thought that there would be a lot more black models on the covers of magazines by now. If you get a chance, be sure to check out this show. It's really fabulous. Inspiring Beauty, 50 Years of Ebony Fashion Fair. Currently, where is it? In Detroit, at the Charles H. White Museum of African American History, and it's up until the 3rd of January. We're going to Los Angeles now. You might recall that back in 1991, a black motorist named Rodney King was pulled from his car and savagely beaten by white LAPD cops. Then in 1992, the jury found that they were all not guilty, not guilty, not Three of those officers were acquitted, and that sparked days of riots. In the decades since, artists have interpreted this terrible American moment in various ways, and Nick Cave is one of them. He's also an artist who thinks that fashion can partner with art to highlight political and social divides. Nick Cave's work is featured on the cover of a new book. It's called Art and Fashion, Collaborations and Connections Between Icons. The fashion historian E.P. Cutler chose 25 collaborations between 50 artists and fashion designers. They're all creating boundary-pushing work. Cave's collaborator was the Swiss photographer Raymond Meyer. E.P. Cutler told us more about Cave when we met her in New York recently. She did this incredible photo shoot with Vogue in 2010. I remember the September issue it came out in. This was a spread where... Nick Cave and Raymond Meyer got together. The cover involves uh, Pierre Hardy boots. and It's got uh, a little furry patch. It's very important because exactly. Cave uses fur for his uh, sound suit. Things. Yes, and then the, the uh, what I love uh, about this work is the undercurrent 
uh, of American race relations, which is, I think, surprising to most people. Nick Cave is African-American. Nick Cave is African-American. And uh, so he made these what kind of look like adult Muppet suits. They look very funny and and, and uh, engaging. They're gorgeous to look at. At the same time, they're, they're over 10 feet tall. And he made them as a response to the Rodney King beating. He, he said, you know, originally he made them from kind of detritus, the concept of of African-American men being kind of thrown away in our society. And then as he he made them, he found that they made a sound. And to him, the sound kind of became this protest cry. So it's interesting because I think for me, Nick Cave's work is so engaging that it kind of brings you in, you know, uh, looking at it you then begin to ask these questions. And and that's kind of what I also try to do is to get people that are uh, intimidated by fashion or intimidated by art and uh, make it a little little easier to to take in, more palatable. E.P. Cutler is the co-author of Art and Fashion, Collaborations and Connections Between Icons. It's out from Chronicle Books. It's full of wild pairings from fashion and art. Cutler calls fashion and art culture's new it couple. Pretty wild couples, I have to say. Here's a few of them. Elsa Schiaparelli and Salvador Dali making a gown with a great big lobster on it. T-shirts and accessories by Matt Groening, the creator, of course, of The Simpsons, and Ray Kawakubo, the founder of Comme des Garçons. A really, and I mean really, limited edition collection of menswear by the photographer Sterling Ruby and the designer Raph Simmons, who, as you may know, was most recently the creative director at Dior. And you'll love what photographer Cindy Sherman did with vintage Chanel couture in some pretty strange settings. You can find some of these images on our website, theseams.org. We told you that we'd come back to Joe Z for some style advice because he's the guy to ask. I had three fantasies, three situations where I just might want some really good tips. I'm on the red carpet. I'm at maybe the Met Gala Ball. That would be quite wonderful. Or maybe it's the Oscars. Who knows? I've got my red carpet. Sounds experience. fantastic the already. The Spirit <laughs> Awards might be, more, might be more somehow in the realm. Uh, I'm short. I'm petite. You know, what would you suggest? Uh, I would suggest something a little bit body conscious because you know what? If you're short and petite, you can be overwhelmed immediately. And I think I would do body conscious and something a little bit more bare, I have to say. Maybe sleeveless. I would even maybe even do short if you're daring enough. I think you can probably get away with it at the Met because you see every range of fashion and evening at the Met that you can really get away with and have some fun. Um, Probably less so at the Oscars. I would probably not advise short there. Spirit Award, you can wear jeans <laughs> and ride your bike there. But, <laughs> but I think, but you know, if you're going to be short and petite, I would say do not drown in your clothes. Do not be overwhelmed by your clothes. But sometimes having something a little bit more bare is actually more elongating. But something body conscious is also going to stretch your silhouette up more. All right. Next question. I happen to be running for the office of president as the United States. One of the first, the first ever female candidate. I'm on the stage. All my opposition is male, my opposition of the evening, and I decide that I want to wear something that sets me apart. They've got to wear suits and ties. I'm a woman of a certain age, never have been slim. What do I wear? 
I think you wear a dress. I, I think mm. it's not about hiding your femininity. I think it's about putting it out there. It is not about being one of the boys. It's about being you. And I don't even think it's about getting dressed to stand apart. I think it's getting dressed to show an authentic you. Because if you are going to be up there and you're going to be running for the president of the United States, and whether this is the debates or whatever this is, I want to see an authentic you. And I think we are smart enough. I don't need to see you in a suit to believe that you're credible or authoritative. I need to see what you're all about. And like, this person might be Hillary Clinton. And so, <laughs> so if she tapped you, would you get her out of the pantsuit? I thought she looked oh, quite good at the Democratic debate. She in looked terms great. Of the, I love uh, Hillary. That outfit. You know, I, as a fashion person, do I think that we critique her? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in a, in, in a tough place because never in any presidential election have we ever critiqued anything. We've never sat down and broken down and had like the Obama lookbook and this and that. Are we going to do that with Hillary? I mean, probably. I mean, the reality is, like, it is what it is. And and I hate that it had to be about that. I would love to be straight about the issues. Because she's the female? Platform. Yeah, because, it's, because if it is going to be, end up being her or and Ben Carson or Trump, whatever. But we don't break down any of that in the same degree right. for which people are going to break down Mrs. Clinton's. And I think that is such an insight into who are who we are as a society but that being said i think she has the opportunity to look great and she doesn't have to you know a great suit a great skirt suit a great dress she would look dynamic in three quarters sleeve something like i can just see that and i think it would still have a lot of authority because she speaks and commands attention when when she talks and and i think that'll come across whether she's in a pantsuit or not a pantsuit i think that's not the reason people are voting for her you are good you are good <laughs> All right. Okay. I have a Halloween party to go to, but this Halloween party is going to be uh, it's channeling downtown New York, but it's taking place in, I don't know, southern Indiana. What should I wear for Halloween? Well, that sounds like the Met. <laughs> <laughs> so we're back at the Met. <laughs> downtown New York channeling, channeling I'm, downtown New York, but in Indiana. Yes. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what I love? I actually love downtown New York, but vintage downtown New York. I love, like, the Mud Club and the ah. 80s. And, like, when Madonna was clubbing in downtown New York with Keith Haring, and it was a much more free scene. And I think what Madonna burst onto the scene with in 83 with the t ripped T-shirts and the pencil skirts and the bobby socks and the heels and the rubber bracelets was very indicative of what was going on in New York City. And I think to be in Halloween – for that moment, I would personify the most exciting, energetic moment, and I would pull that moment out. And I would do old Madonna, and I would do old Debbie Harry, and I would do those icons that that was so free of what fashion was, even the Cindy Lauper's of the world. Like that time, I think was so symbolic of what downtown New York is, at least in my mind. You got style. Joe Z. He's the editor-in-chief and executive creative officer of Yahoo Style. His new memoir is called That's What Fashion Is. It's a very fun read. And you can catch Joe and his fashion advice every weekday on the ABC show Fab Life.
That's it for this episode of The Seams. It was produced by Elaine Heinzman. Our editor is Cindy Carpian. Our intern is Georgie Goldstein. Our web designer is Jess D'Amico. Our theme song, Fortune Cookie, is from the album The Further Adventures of Low Straight Jackets, used with permission from the band Low Straight Jackets. The Seams is sponsored by Feel Good Yarn Company. Check them out at feelgoodyarncompany.com. And to see photos from the stories featured in this episode, look for us on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Tumblr. Just search for The Seams Podcast. Please talk to us on Twitter. Our handle is at Seams Podcast. If you like what you hear on The Seams, we would absolutely love it if you rate the podcast on iTunes and write a review. Thank you for doing that. Next time on The Seams, Veterans Day is coming up, so we'll be talking, what else, about camouflage. Have you ever noticed how much there is on sports uniforms? We wanted to know how veterans feel about it. Camouflage looks great in the jungle. It has a specific design function, but it doesn't really work on a sports uniform, and it just looks absurd. I'm Jackie Lydon, your head seamstress. Thanks for listening. <laughs>